Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I'm Emily Booter, Managing Editor of No Film School. And I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School. It's November 17th, 2016, and on this week's show, we'll bring you DJI's slew of new gear, early Oscar news, updates from the American film market in LA, a couple film world goodbyes, and in Ask No Film School, how to create a basic production budget. And as always, more news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, and new film releases. Welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. We mentioned in last week's show that Doc NYC started last week, and now we are right in the middle of it. And we have a couple of great posts up already. One with producing tips from the movie Film Hawk about film consultant Bob Hawk, who is famous for discovering Kevin Smith. Another one from a panel about what's the best gear to shoot your doc with. And a third about strategies for documentary funding. I've seen several films there already. Have you guys seen anything good? Uh, yeah, I saw Fire at Sea. It was uh, Liz has talked about it in previous episodes, and she interviewed the director, actually, Gianfranco Rossi. Um, he spent a year and a half there. And by there, I mean in Lampedusa, an island off Italy, um, where a bunch of migrants um, from neighboring countries wind up passing through because it's it's the first stop in the ocean on the way to Italy. Um, it, it's really heartbreaking. It's almost like you can't even believe some of the stuff you're seeing, especially at the end. Um, but it's very poetic. And it's start with the camera that's very good at um, low light situations. So there's a lot of really striking night footage in there. Yeah, it's a beautiful film, and it's actually coming out in theaters now, so you should be able to catch it even if you aren't in New York City. I also, I, I saw three films, all which turned out to be like strangely apropos to our political moment. Um, I saw a documentary about L7, the riot girl band called L7 Pretend We're Dead, and it was cool. It like reminds me why film festivals are fun to go to because the band L7 and the Luna Chicks and Joan Jett were all in the audience. So I felt like I was like among my my riotous girliest people. It was fun. Um, I also saw last night a movie called Mother with a Gun about the woman who runs the Jewish Defense League. I don't know if you guys know anything about it, but it's the only American organization that engages in armed resistance against anti-Semitic acts. It was super intense. Um, And I finally saw I'm Not Your Negro, which won the Audience Documentary Award at TIFF and has been so widely discussed. Uh, It's about black writer and activist James Baldwin, and I'll be interviewing the director, Raoul Peck, right before their February release. So that one will definitely be out in theaters for folks to see as well. Also last week was the huge American film market event in L.A., and Emily has some words about what happened there. I absolutely do. So the American film market, otherwise known as the AFM, is a marketplace that's historically been a hub for big budget and star-driven titles. But this year, there was a notable shortage of Hollywood fare. This signaled a boon to the indie film marketplace, which was brimming with smart titles for sale this year. In addition to being about international sales, the AFM also is a place where industry dealmakers meet to make all kinds of deals, actually $1 billion in total per year. 
Um, it's eight days of screening, seminars, networking, and parties. And anyone from development executives to agents to attorneys to directors and distributors and festival directors get together to figure out what the next year's of movies will look like. So what does that mean? What is a marketplace? Oh, a marketplace is a place where um, films in development, pre-production, and finished films can be sold to international buyers and international territories. So basically, it's a place where domestic titles, American titles, get bought from overseas. Cool. But although the indie film sector was thriving this year, the news isn't all good. The traditional pipeline for film financing, in which pre-sales to foreign territories are used to secure 70% of a film's budget, and that was also bolstered by revenue from VOD, is really unraveling these days, according to The Hollywood Reporter. The AFM managing director, Jonathan Wolf told The Hollywood Reporter that, quote, 15 years ago, you could make a $5 million straight to video horror film, and that was a good business. But now if you go straight to VOD and your budget is over $1.2 million, you're going to get in trouble. So as a result, international buyers at AFM this year wanted fewer but better films that can perform well at the box office without having to rely on money that surely will not come in from DVD sales. There was one country, however, that got very trigger-happy with the pre-sales this year, and that was China. Wow, China again? We yep. keep talking about this. China. China invested a lot in, f in domestic films this year, and American production companies really hope this will compensate for the decline in the traditional pipeline that I just spoke about. Another interesting development from this year is that comedies seem to be suffering. Foresight Unlimited president Tamara Burkamo told The Hollywood Reporter that comedy now has to be star-driven. Without big stars, you can't sell it. She also said that global audiences and American moviegoers have very different tastes when it comes to comedy in particular. Romantic comedies work really well internationally, she said, but, for example, domestically, they're dead. The good news, though, is that the comedies that are thriving featured female-driven leads, which was great. Go funny ladies. As for the notable films that were on sale in the marketplace this year, there's one that I'm particularly excited for, and it will absolutely be an Oscar contender when it does come out. Um, it stars one of my favorite actresses and is based on a novel by a great American writer. So returning to her theme of suicide and depression, a la The Virgin Suicides and Melancholia, Kirsten Dunst's directorial debut will be The Bell Jar, which stars Dakota Fanning, and it's currently in development. It's based on Sylvia Plath's semi-autobiographical novel about a young woman struggling with depression, which she describes as akin to being suffocated under a bell jar. I have really high hopes for this one, and I hope it's as good as it sounds. Other films for sale this year were an untitled Steve McQueen biopic from Andrew Haig, which was the director of one of year, last year's best films, uh, 45 Years. Also, female cinematographer Reed Morano's sophomore feature, I Think We're Alone Now, starring the other fanning, Elle, and a new film from Sean Penn, starring his daughter, Dylan Penn, and... Drake Dormus's new film, Zoe, starring Leia Seydoux. Thanks, Emily. I learned a lot. The 2017 Academy Award nominations won't be announced until January 24th, but we've already got some fun Oscar tidbits to share. And who doesn't like fun tidbits? First, there are a record-breaking number of animated features under consideration this year, namely 27. There need to be at least 16 features eligible in order to fill the five slots that get an actual nomination, but sometimes there aren't enough animated films to get there. 
The submitted features include titles you'd expect, like Pixar's Finding Dory and Disney's Moana, but there's also some more indie-type fare, like Seth Rogen's Sausage Party, an adult animation that played at South by Southwest this past year, and an animated documentary about World War I from New Zealand called 25 April that screened at TIFF in 2015. Meanwhile, this past weekend, some Oscars were already awarded at the Governor's Awards, which are offered by the Academy to recognize lifetime achievement. I have to say this year, the four recipients are truly awesome. One is British film editor Anne V. Coates, who edited and won her first Oscar way back for Lawrence of Arabia. Or maybe a more appropriate reference for this show is that she edited David Lynch's Elephant Man. We actually have a great post on the site from when she was giving editing advice at the Sight, Sound, and Story event earlier this year at age 91. She's still out there rocking. It's amazing. Also awarded was Frederick Wiseman, director of over 40 documentaries and a filmmaker who popularized and some would say perfected the Cinema Verite style. Also casting director Lynn Stallmuster. And my personal favorite on the list, Jackie Chan, who has never won an Oscar, even though he's acted in 134 films and produced, written, and directed several movies as well. Do either of you guys have a favorite animated contender or a favorite Jackie Chan movie to share? Well, it's just interesting um, how this uh, animation category is sort of evolving, you know, because there are more and more adult animation films coming out. I saw a movie called Nerdland at Tribeca, um, which was directed by Chris Pranowski and written by Andrew Kevin Walker. And Chris Pranowski is kind of one of the big heads at Adult Swim. He was responsible for shows like Metalocalypse. And Andrew Kevin Walker wrote Seven. So, I mean, it's just, it's an awesome collaboration. And as I guess the public is getting more and more used to these sort of raunchy animated films, they need to have a place to be recognized. So, <laughs> honestly, it's hard to compare movies like those to Finding Dory or Moana because they are of almost a completely different genre. They're much more experimental and they're much more, uh, it's much more of an artful medium in some ways, mm-hmm. but. So it's it, not a genre anymore. What do you mean? Animation. Animation? Yeah. Or it is a genre, and the fair that will be considered for awards will be the more, you know, adult and serious fair instead of the more childish ones. Well, what's interesting is I actually just wrote up a video um, last week um, where Brad Bird gave some insight into his own animation process, and he was very stringent about not labeling animation itself as a genre. It's more of a medium that within you can make genres so it's like you can make a horror animated film or you can make a sci-fi animated film but animated is the medium and horror is the genre so i guess that yeah this new genre within animation would be sort of like adult uh shock value but then there's also movies like what the all my the high school what what was the name of the high school entire high school sinking into the sea i saw that at um at toronto yeah and it was at new york film festival too so i mean they're becoming more and more, um, I guess, respected within the indie film world, which is good. So interesting. I wonder if the category will change in future years. So we posted not one, but two obituaries on No Film School this past week. Neither of these gentlemen were directors or DPs, but they both made great marks on film. The first is the fantastic singer and songwriter Leonard Cohen, who passed away last Thursday at age 82. I think many of you probably know that it's Rufus Wainwright's gorgeous cover of the Cohen song Hallelujah on the Shrek soundtrack. But Cohen's listed on IMDb with no less than 242 other soundtrack credits. 
His songs were evocative and told stories in and of themselves, and we're glad that his legacy will live on in literally hundreds of movies. Which movies has he scored? Or has he written music for? I mean... Over 200. He didn't score the movies, but his songs were used on soundtracks of all of these films, including, you know, some big name films and also a lot of indies. I remember um, Basquiat is on the list, for example, which also uses a cover of Hallelujah. I was going to say Hallelujah must account for like at least 40 percent of (laughs) this. At least. Our second goodbye this week goes to the actor Robert Vaughn, who was best known for roles in The Magnificent Seven and The Man from UNCLE. He passed away last Friday at age 83, and we have a very special remembrance of him on the site. Vaughn's final film performance was in a debut independent feature called Gold Star, and that film's director, Victoria Negri, wrote for us about Vaughn's career and her experiences working with him. In the film, he played Negri's ailing father, and she played herself. Of the experience, she wrote... In one scene in my film, I move Robert's immobile character from his wheelchair to a couch and back. We blocked the scene together, and I explained to Robert how I would lift my father and how he could barely support his own body weight. Without hesitation, Robert trusted me. I felt his body go limp in my arms. He challenged me in the moment, in take after take, with sweat pouring down my back, to turn this scene I'd written based on something real into that real thing itself. He was fully committed and generous, even brave." Thanks, Victoria, for writing your memories for us. And for this week's gear news, as always, we brought in tech writer Charles Hain. And I'm going to start off by asking, I know you stopped by NAB New York last year after years of going to the main NAB in Vegas. So I'd love to hear kind of what your impressions were. NAB New York. Um NAB and any trade show, really worth going to. I'm mostly a Cinegear guy, but I do love NAB Vegas, and uh, NAB New York was great. It's obviously smaller than the Vegas show, but all the big vendors are there. Lots of people are there on the floor. I think everybody should go to trade shows more often because we use this gear in our day-to-day lives, and it's great to meet the people. Mostly it's salespeople. But often there's engineers and designers there from the various companies, and you get to talk to the people who make this stuff you use all the time. Um, there were a few things in the show floor that we're really looking forward to covering in the next couple of weeks. Um, one thing that I'm very excited about, there was a 2200-nit monitor on display from a company that I had never heard of before. Um, it's not out until next year. They're hoping to get us a tester, so we'll do a full review of it once a tester is available. Um, but that's one of the fun things about trade shows is getting introduced to new stuff that you'd never heard of and never would have known about otherwise. The big theme this year was definitely HDR. All the big camera and post and monitoring and distribution companies are working together to make HDR not just like a thing that happens, but hopefully a thing that happens as painlessly as possible for creators. And uh, that's what all the Sony presentations were about, where we know this is coming, but it's not going to hurt. And uh, that was nice to hear. So what's come out this past week outside of NAB New York? So there's been a lot going on. DJI is on a tear of upgrades. So they came out with the Mavic Pro back in September, the same week as GoPro's Karma. DJI has had some shipping problems with Mavic. They haven't been coming out. But the ones that have come out haven't been recalled, unlike the GoPros. So So there's a big plus. Yeah. First, they upgraded the Matrix line with the M600, which is their big industrial carrying Alexa line. And then this week, they upgraded the Inspire and Phantom lines. Uh, Phantom 4 is now out, and the Inspire 2 both released this week. Um, D- 
DJI is placing a real emphasis on image quality, intelligent flight controls, impact avoidance, and ease of use. It's going to be really exciting to see these in the field. We're going to be running a special series on the Inspire 2 starting this week. And the last thing that we ran this week that I thought was really interesting uh, is Hive, who are most famous for their plasma lights, have released their first LED, and they're really pushing for color accuracy. Um, the goal isn't necessarily to build something that hits a specific CRI number, but something that can match other units with high precision. So it's capable of hitting up to 98 CRI, but if you're matching it against a daylight that's lower or you're matching it against an HMI that's only 88 CRI, you can dial it in to match. And I think that's a pretty exciting tool. It's also designed and primarily manufactured in California. Uh, it doesn't have a little made in USA tag on it like a jacket from the 80s, but it could. And I think that's kind of awesome. And that's gear news for the week. Thanks, Charles. And now moving on to upcoming deadlines and events. We're taking Thanksgiving off next week um, for a much needed vacation, I think, for all of us. So we have included dates that range up until December 2nd. The first date you should be aware of is the CPH form at CPH Docs which has a deadline on November 25th. CPH Docs is the Copenhagen International Documentary Film Festival, which is the third biggest documentary film festival in the world. It's my favorite city in the world, too. Copenhagen? Yes. I've never been. CPH Forum is CPH Docs' international financing and co-production event, which is dedicated to facilitate the development and financing of creative and visually strong film projects. This next edition takes place in March from the 22nd to the 23rd. During those days, top producers and highly acknowledged directors from all over the world will take the stage to pitch their projects to an audience of professionals, including potential co-production partners, financers, and distributors. So if you want to be part of that contingent of producers, you can submit your project to one of four categories, fiction, nonfiction, cinema, F, this is kind of, they, they do this thing where they get fancy with their punctuation, so this category is called F colon act, and art. Besides project presentations, the forum offers tailored one-on-one -on -one meetings between the presenting filmmaker teams, financiers, and co-production partners. And to top it all off, they, in conjunction with Your Images co-production, present an award of 15,000 euros for the best pitch. And the next deadline to be aware of is the Pacific Pioneer Fund grant, which has a deadline on December 1st. This is for filmmakers based in California, Washington, or Oregon, and it offers grants in the range from $1,000 to $10,000. It is a grant specifically designed for emerging documentarians. It's a biannual grant that awards $50,000 to filmmakers a year, but the fund does not support instructional or performance documentaries, student film projects, or first-time filmmakers. So filmmakers are eligible for only one grant from the Pacific Pioneer Fund during their careers. So you use it well. Yeah, and important to note that it's not for first-time filmmakers, too. I'm tempted to say YOLO. YOLO? More like you'll po and we talked about some Tribeca Film Festival deadlines a few weeks ago. The second round of those deadlines is coming up. There are two dates to be aware of for the Tribeca Film Festival, November 23rd and December 2nd. These deadlines are what they call the official deadlines, whereas we announced the early deadlines, which were actually $20 cheaper. So if you want to submit to Tribeca and miss these deadlines, then the fee goes up another $20 for the next round of late deadlines. Some of these opportunities actually don't even have late deadlines, so this could be your final chance. The feature-length films have their official deadline on November 23, 2016. It costs $75 to apply for each film you submit. 
The TV deadline is on November 23rd, 2016. All of these are obviously 2016, so I'm going to stop saying that. That has a $60 fee per submission. The Tribeca Now category, which is designed for content specifically made for online consumption, has their deadline on November 23rd. The fee there is $60 per project, and it's important to note that this is the final deadline for this category. There is no late deadline, as is the case for the shorts category, which has their final deadline on December 2nd, 2016. That submission fee is $60 as well. And finally, the experiential work category, which includes VR, interactive, mobile, etc., has their final deadline on December 2nd, 2016. It's only $40 per project there, but once again, if you don't hit this deadline, you cannot submit your VR work. Another one of our favorite New York-based events has their deadline on December 2nd as well, the early bird deadline. It's Rooftop Films, which you've heard about here on the show. It's a New York-based nonprofit who, in May 2017, will host their 21st year of bringing the best independent films in the world outdoors and to the rooftops of New York. We love these events, and we've even had programming director Dan Nuxall on an interview episode that I did earlier this year at the beginning of their season. It's called Inside the Minds of Film's Coolest Gatekeepers and How to Get Yours Programmed, so we'll link to it in this week's podcast post. The festival doesn't offer awards, but any artist whose work is selected to screen in any capacity then becomes eligible to apply each year to the Rooftop Films Fund, which awards grants every year to be put toward future films and videos. In previous years, they funded Anna Lilia Mirpour's uh, Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Which I actually saw at Rooftop Films. Me too. Yeah, it me was too. Like, were we, we were all there? there? Yeah, oh we God, were. That's cool. <laughs> Before we knew each other. Crazy that night. She was like... Oh, you thought she was crazy that night. You should have <laughs> seen, seen the Q&A, and Emily, and yeah. I saw it. Oh, Tiff. <laughs> wow. But that you was know the what? most awkward Q&A we've ever seen in our entire lives. It was a really tough Q&A. And I have to say, like, there's so many male auteur filmmakers who are out there who seem like batshit crazy, like Quentin Tarantino. So mm. it's yeah. about time there's a freaking nuts female Yeah, she's definitely auteur. got a strong voice. Strong POV. Anyway, Rooftop supports all kinds of really, I would say, cutting-edge films. So if you've got one, um, they accept films of any length, format, or genre. And as a thank you for submitting, every person who submits... Um, any film will get two free tickets to next year's summer screening series. Again, early bird deadline, December 2nd. We talk about Vimeo and Indie Film Weekly a lot, and that's because everyone knows that the world's best filmmakers call Vimeo their online home. Now, they've offered a special discount on Vimeo Pro memberships for you, our listeners. Save 15% when you go to vimeo.com professionals Get Pro and enter the code NFS at checkout. When you do, you can upload up to 20 gigs of video each week and showcase your videos with unlimited bandwidth in Vimeo's ad-free 4K player. Plus, they just launched a cleaner and more customizable profile page that helps you showcase your videos. You can even upload a cover video. You'll get access to all of Vimeo Pro's powerful tools and join a supportive community of other passionate filmmakers and video professionals, just like at No Film School. A couple things you should know. The discount's limited to one per person and is only valid for your first year of membership. So this week in everyone's favorite segment, Ask No Film School, 
Natalie Evans has asked a very simple question with a very complicated answer, which boils down to how do I make a budget? In her case, it's a small music video budget for school, and her professor has required that they create budgets. Um, I'll start by saying I've made a zillion budgets, and it's literally never fun. But I promise it gets easier with practice. And of course, I'm going to send you to poke around No Film School, where we have dozens of posts about budgeting. One of the most useful, I think, is a recent one called 12 Indispensable Tips for Budgeting Your Indie Feature. And we'll link to that in this week's podcast post. There's another one called Every Filmmaking Form You'll Ever Need in 99 Free Templates that includes several budget templates. There are a lot of budgeting templates out there, and they can be really way too overcomplicated, especially for small productions. Um, For a basic video that it sounds like you're making, you can really make yourself a pretty simple layout in a program like Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets. So I'm going to try to give a brief overview of what this would include. So your columns would be item, description, number, unit, cost, and actual cost. The item and description are what cost you're talking about. The number is how many of them you need. The unit is how that number is counted, and the cost is the number multiplied by the unit. So in real terms, say you have a DP with a day rate of 1000 bucks for a three-day shoot. The item is director of photography, the number is three, the unit is days, and the cost is three times 1000 The actual cost column gets filled out later after you've spent the money, and it kind of helps you keep track of how you're doing as you go through the three phases. So the three phases are basically your sections, your your rows in the uh, spreadsheet. Each of them includes the personnel required for that part of the production, among other things. So one section is pre-production, which includes things like research and prep days and legal counsel to make sure everything's above board with your production. The next section is production which includes things like production insurance, gear rental, walkies, location costs, transportation for your crew and craft services, an essential element. Don't forget to feed everybody. And you've probably guessed by now that your third section is post-production. So this covers editing, but don't forget to include any drives or other hardware you might have to purchase. And also things like music composition, and color correction, audio sweetening, or any kind of ADR and Foley that you might have to record. For a production with intended distribution, so not necessarily for a school project, but for something with a larger plan, you'd also include a section for distribution and outreach. So that is a very simplistic overview, but it should get you started, and uh, we want to wish you good luck. And there's a lot of great movies opening up in the next couple weeks, a lot of great indies that have come out this year made their runs through the festival circuit and are finally getting online and in your streaming hubs, whatever that may be. The first of those that I'd like to highlight is Don't Think Twice, which is coming to VOD on November 22nd. Mike Birbiglia wrote, directs, and stars in this Ira Glass-produced comedy about the up and downs of New York City's fading improv scene. It was probably my favorite film I saw at Tribeca last year, and it was another one of our writer, Micah Van Hove's favorite from South by Southwest. It's really a great look into what it takes to try and break into the comedy scene today. Um, it's a little too real for some of my friends, I think. You kind of get your start at UCB, or Upright, which is Upright Citizens Brigade, um, or any other sort of small improv-based 
comedy club like the pit or the magnet and then from there if you're lucky you can get a writing job at a sketch show like snl and then from there you can maybe even get a chance to star in that show so Micah got a chance to interview both Glass and Berbiglia at South By, where Glass explained why he hates producing, and Berbiglia explained how he had to kill his darlings, which was especially hard because a lot of the movie is improv-based. It has a great cast. Keegan-Michael Key is in it. Julian uh, Murphy? No, nah, Julian Jacobs. Julian Jacobs, yeah. Who is a celebrity crush of mine. Is there literally an actress under 30 that you don't have a crush on? I don't think, I think she's over 30. Is there literally an actress under 40 that you don't have a crush on? <laughs> yeah. Um, who can I, what can I say about that? <laughs> you don't have to tell us. Stacey Dash. You know her? Oh, yeah. She yeah. stinks. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that was too political. And coming to Amazon Prime Instant on November 19th is Creed. It's hard to believe that this was Ryan Coogler's second feature, um, but now he's indisputably one of independent film's most important voices, I think. His first feature was Fruitvale Station, which if you haven't seen, you should definitely watch now because it's very relevant. Uh, That film also stars Michael B. Jordan, who, in my opinion, deserved an Oscar nod for his performance in Fruitvale, as well as his performance in Creed. I think Creed is a pretty underrated movie. It's uh, really entertaining, and it's powerful, and, you know, like, say what you want about Rocky. Rocky's a great movie, too, but, I mean, the franchise has sort of deteriorated deteriorated since then. And just to stay on theme, Michael B. Jordan is one of my top five film crushes, Mm, and I even met him at South by Southwest. Oh, nice. He wasn't that friendly, but still hot. Oh, that's disappointing. Not all hot people can be friendly. (laughs) No. I'm both, so. (laughs) Um, Sylvester Stallone narrowly missed an Oscar himself for his portrayal of an aging Rocky Balboa who agrees to coach his old foe, Apollo Creed's son, Adonis, who is played by Michael B. Jordan. And if you're not convinced on Coogler's talent, his next film is going to be another huge jump um, where he gets into franchise comic book territory after he took over for Ava DuVernay on Black Panther. And the last movie I have to talk about is Boyhood, which is coming to Netflix on November 25th. I'm sure many of you have seen this. It's Richard Linklater's one-of-a-kind epic that was filmed over the course of 12 years with the same cast. That cast is comprised of Patricia Raquette, who won an Oscar for the role, Ethan Hawke, Eller Coltrane, and even Linklater's own daughter, Lorelai Linklater, who, fairly enough, admits she lost interest in the film as she progressed further and further into adolescence, even going so far as to request her father killed her character off. Wow. That's pretty funny. We really never will see another movie like this one ever made, and it's worth watching as a filmmaker just as an exercise in building a lengthy narrative it's and an cr- inspiration for persistence. Yeah, I mean... And if you grew up in the early 90s, then you will love the soundtrack. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a crazy meta movie. Like, you literally get to watch Eller Coltrane grow up in front of your eyes. It's, I mean, like, when he gets to be a teenager, he gets more awkward in his acting, and which is fine because, like, when you're in your teens, you are more awkward as a person. The cast, crew, and director got together one week every year for 12 years to film scenes, and... And Eller uh, was seven years old when the movie started and 19 when it finished. And coming to theaters on November 18th, you have to see this this weekend with your family for or, or with your family for Thanksgiving. It's um, one of the top five films of the year for me, for sure. Manchester by the Sea by Kenneth Lonergan, who started his career as a playwright. And his wordsmith skills are on display in this film, which is an incredible screenplay. I'll talk about the structure a little bit later, but to give you a sense of what it's about, it's a character drama starring Casey Affleck as a blue-collar New Englander doing what he does best. No, not accents, but 
brooding. He does that even better. Um, Wait, so, are we talking about Casey Affleck? Yeah. Can I share a really funny story? Sure. Okay, so when I was in Toronto at TIFF, um, I went to a Toronto Blue Jays game, just kind of at the spur of the moment. I just got like a ticket um, and like for really cheap. And I ended up sitting next to these like Toronto or Canada natives. And one of the guy was guys was just like completely obsessed with Casey Affleck for no reason at all. Anyways, um, that's that's all I got. Well, since you guys <laughs> shared people that you would like to sleep with that are actors, I will just put it out there that Casey Affleck is definitely very attractive, especially in this movie. I didn't say that I would like to sleep. I also <laughs> did not say that. I think Okay, I made a leap. I made a leap. <laughs> you made a leap right into bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would never go that far immediately. I would <laughs> take her out to a nice dinner and then maybe write her some poetry. You're a hard one battle. Yeah. I'm glad we've had some influence on you, John. Oh, come Come on, I've always been a romantic at heart. <laughs> so is Casey Affleck. Oh, yeah. Um, in this movie, which is about him getting called back to his hometown, a small town in New England, in the wake of his brother's death. Uh, now, his brother left his nephew an orphan, and so he winds up being the guardian. Um, but that's a little bit of a complicated situation because of a mysterious trauma in his past involving his ex-wife, who's played by Michelle Williams. The trauma is slowly revealed through the film's nuanced narrative structure, which alternates from present to past in a really interesting way. Um, it's not the traditional flashback structure. It's more woven into the to the narrative at large. Um, and it's a quiet film that really revels in detail. There's a lot of idiosyncratic character humor. And there's one incredible scene that is definitely going to beg Oscars for both Affleck and Williams, um, and it will have everyone talking. You finally find out what happened um, between the two of them that rocked both of their worlds. Oh, what happened? I'm just kidding. Don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) What? Crickets. Crickets. (laughs) That's a cricket. (laughs) It's a small mouse. And I just want to make a shout out. This is my first shout out ever, guys. And uh, I'm going to make it to Jason Galea who I interviewed a few months ago as a part of a music video retrospective. Um, I've done a few of them. This guy is one of the busiest dudes alive, and he still found time to release a documentary chronicling over two years of footage from touring with the band King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Um, Though he assured me it's not the psychedelic masterpiece he was initially going for, I watched it the other day, and it really is quite an accomplishment. He... uh, just really went freeform and took a bunch of like concert footage and a bunch of behind the scenes footage, melded them all together. He literally had two years worth of footage from seven tours and found a way to get it down to a two hour documentary. And it's really cool. So you can watch that. Um, it's called King Gizzard's Bootleg Holiday from Hell on YouTube for free. And you know what? We'll throw it in the post just for our listeners. So that brings us near to the close. Check out your iTunes on Monday for a brand new interview podcast. And that will hopefully satiate you for a little while since, as John mentioned earlier, we will not be bringing you an indie film weekly episode next Thursday as it's Thanksgiving here in the U.S. But I hope you'll use that extra time to catch up on some of the older interview episodes and to subscribe on iTunes and give us that five-star rating. Meanwhile, please stay in touch. You can read everything we talked about and more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. 
You can find me on Twitter at Liz Film. And I'm on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. <laughs> and Emily left, so she doesn't get to say her Twitter name. But just in case, you can find Emily on Twitter at E.L. Booter and all of us on Twitter at No Film School. Thanks for listening. See you in December. Wow. Wow.